This is the Yanks are coming soccer show. Carter Christiner alongside Matt Lickstatter. Matt, great to have you with us today. Um, deputizing for Neil in a way, and we've got two major finals to talk about. Let's start with the women winning the Women's World Cup. Uh, the Dutch, who we spent a lot of time building up in, in uh, the preview that Neil and I did prior to the final uh, and had an outstanding tournament, were great in the Euros two years ago, they simply didn't show any of that midfield quality and that attacking trio quality that we had assumed they would going into the final. Stage fright. <laughs> Yeah, it was definitely stage right. I, you can't, it happens in finals. It happens in finals. It happens when you're going up, not just in a final, but you're going up against, you know, this dominant team. And the U.S. women are a dominant team. And as much as maybe all of us criticize Jill Ellis, I think that's a pastime of women's soccer Twitter is to find ways to pick holes in what she does. And we've all questioned what she's done. Uh, uh, okay, Matt, let's actually, you actually hit on the one I want to talk about right uh, at the beginning. So keep going with that. I, I want to really dissect where we all in the media got it wrong the last three years since the Sweden game in the Olympics, because we've just maybe held Jill Ellis to a standard that no other manager in the world, men's or women, has been held to. Well, I mean, part of it, I've always subscribed to the theory that in the end, if you have the talent, it's going to win out. And people might know that I like Tottenham Hotspur a little bit. Uh, it reminds me of when our Lord and Savior Tim Sherwood was coaching the team. <laughs> would teams that were inferior just because they had better talent. But once they played actually good teams, they got tactically schemed to death and destroyed. Then what happens with Jill Ellis is there are a lot of good teams in the women's game right now. But there was nobody up there that can say, I'm going to take a slightly lesser talented team and tactically out-scheme you to win. We thought there might be teams like that, but we didn't see it in this tournament. So the little tactical nuances that we all think about with Jill Ellis is where does certain players play in the midfield? The back line, right? Certain ways of how they play. It particularly came in when they started bunkering the second half against England and against France when they had the lead and were trying to hold on to it instead of trying to go out and destroy people, which has changed a little bit in the Dutch game. But those criticisms, I guess, don't really play because there's nobody in the women's game. It hasn't matured enough yet to where there is somebody that has a team that is lesser than to the U.S. in terms of talent, but has such a good manager that could exploit these little things. We just, didn't, we just don't have that yet in the women's game. And it doesn't help, obviously, that the Dutch were clearly stage fright, had stage fright, you know, had the jitters. Yeah, and... And I think, obviously, the big question that I heard in the English press was why Ellis had gone to five at the back so early against England. But that, you could argue, and Neil and I did this on the previous pod, was a reaction to Frank Kirby coming on and the game, the trajectory of the game starting. Now, why Phil Neville didn't start Frank Kirby, why he didn't start um, Greenwood, why he didn't start Stanaway, we can talk about that. But that's, you know, Jill Ellis can only manage against who she manages against. And he plainly, in that, in that match, she outmanaged Neville. Phil Neville overthought it. Phil Neville gets caught in this tournament, and the undoing of England was he overthought it. And I subscribe to something that is wonderful. It's called Occam's Razor. The simplest explanation is probably the right one. Just do what you do. <laughs> and sometimes, and you know what? I'm going to quote another famous Englishman, Gary Lineker. Uh, football is a sport where 20-odd men kick a ball around for 90 minutes, and in the end, the Germans win. Take the last bit of it out and take the men out and replace it with women, and it's about 20-odd women kick a ball around for 90 minutes, and you try to put it in the net. Sometimes it's as simple as that. You know, it may be because we're so used to the club game where there are so many wonderful tactical things that happen, but because teams are together for so long and they yeah. do so many games, this is not something that happens. The U.S. women were together for two months before, from the start of this Women's World Cup to the end. That's enough time to get something tactically together, but by no means is it months on end like you get in the club game. So maybe we need to get out of a club mindset when we think about managers. You know, I mean, and Phil Neville is also not somebody who's managed at a high level in anything. Like, he's not a bad manager, but he clearly overthought himself, and that cost England. If he did it simply, I think the U.S. probably still would have won because they had the better team, but England would have at least probably forced it to extra time. Maybe, because they were there the whole way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there wasn't too much between the teams, but the the gap between England and the U.S. seemed to be uh, management-inflicted or, or tactically-inflicted. And after 
the two days in the English press of saying, oh, we're so proud of our girls. They did so well. Then the media began to turn on Neville saying, well, wait a second. Now, why did he set up this way? And why did he, you know, Rachel Daly, how she was used in that game? Why did Stokes start? Why uh, uh, was Lucy Bronze kind of in between uh, playing as a right back and a right winger? Therefore, you know, nowhere to be found on Christian Press's goal. Um, and, you know, admittedly, Lucy Bronson have a, a great game. So maybe uh, for one of the best players in the world, she had a bit of stage fright or just had an off day. But um, going back to the final, Matt, the Dutch had so much that we liked about them going forward in this tournament. And except for that spell between maybe minute 35, 37, and the end of the first half, they really didn't show us that attacking quality that we had come to expect from them. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a lot of it stage fright. I really do, because they didn't attack very well in the game against Sweden either, to be fair to them. Right, and When you Correct. go up against the U.S. in that kind of game, they have no fear. They don't play with fear in anything. And I want to get to that in just the reaction to how this team is being received and how this Women's World Cup is being received in a, in a second. But just from a pure soccer perspective, you know, maybe we should just give Jill Ellett credits for keeping things simple. She knows what her team can do, and she doesn't have to tactically overthink it um, because there was a time when I was talking about, you know, Rose Lavelle, who was great in this tournament, but she was not good against France. She looked like she had stage fright. It was one of the, you know... Ten players look great, but Rose Lavelle was a little bit, oh. And then she came to the fore in the other two games, right? But sometimes maybe yeah. for the U.S. it's just a matter of keeping it simple. You just let great players play, and they won. And the Dutch are not yet at a point where they can say, we're not afraid of this. If you got them in a cannon moment, they'd be like, we're going up against this team in a final of a World Cup when we've never been there before. And also, I mean, they're not thinking about it, but of course we have the Dutch in World Cup finals in history. I mean, for a while, yeah. I thought that this was the 2010 World Cup final all over again with fouls and nothing really happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the tactical, you know what, Matt, I, I was thinking about that within 20 minutes, that this feels a lot like the Spain-Netherlands match. And uh, I mean, it's like Van Marwijk. I compare it to, to the men's game, but that's the first game that I thought of. And also, yeah, subscribes same, to the great here. overall theory that finals stink as, a, as they're great as occasions, but they stink as actual games. Like, the yeah. only final that's been legitimately good was France-Croatia. That's the only good final of a major international tournament we've seen in recent years. But that's yeah. the outlier, because most of them stink. Um, and so it turns out. We will get to that a little bit more, I think. But that's for the Dutch. I think it's like, they're not there yet as a program. But if the Dutch and the U.S. play in the final in the Olympics in Tokyo, the game will be different. The Dutch will not play the same way. Um, they now have that experience. And that team's really young, too. So right, they, right. Have, they have plenty of talented players. They have a, a, a manager who played for Anson Dorrance, and Anson Dorrance, of course, was the coach of the first U.S. Uh, women's team that won the World Cup in 91 and has won a billion national championships with North Carolina. So, again, it's not as if these, these, these players aren't in a position to succeed. They were. They made it to the final, and they got a favorable run. Would they have gone out earlier if they had played where the U.S. played? Maybe. But you know what kind of is ironic? Maybe the team that played the U.S. best was Spain. Which makes yeah, no, no sense, I agree. But that's probably the team that played them the best. Anson Dorrance, by the way, before the tournament, gave an interview to Soccer America, Matt, where he talked about there being too much Dutch influence in American uh, in American soccer. Wait a minute. He was talking, wait a minute. What about the he was talking about soccer two. directly being named the championship League One and League Two? That's English. You're right. I think he he um, was referring to Burhalter and, and, and Stewart. And Ernie Stewart, uh, but he, which... It's yeah. fair. I mean, it's not a bad way of following it, but I mean, I guess if you're trying to win major finals, maybe not, unless you've got Dennis Bergkamp scoring one of the greatest goals in the history of the sport. Uh, right. 1988. But, I mean, when I look at just the final overall, I mean, it felt like the U.S. was going to win. You can't kick someone that high and not have it be a penalty, obviously. Yeah. And then it felt like that opened up the game, and then once that happened, the Dutch had no chance. But, but, but for this team overall, it's as I said, maybe we just overthought it before the tournament. Like, I never thought going to France, I'm like, oh, the U.S. is still going to win this, guys. Like, France is going to be difficult. Yeah. It might be one of the first times that the U.S. plays a legitimate, like, road game in a World Cup, but they're still going to be the better team. They're going to win. And they did. Because, you know what? Sometimes the simplest explanation is the right one. Talent won out. And the U.S. is still the most talented team. There are yeah, players, obviously, that got left home that would have been starting 11s with basically everybody else. McCall's or Boney comes to mind yes. right away. Casey Short comes to mind. Uh, so my the point on this I want to make also is that 
we were so difficult on every tactical change Joel Ellis made. He went to three at the back. And I'm talking about in the three years before the World Cup. For those of you who, who uh, started following this with the World Cup, there were a lot of things that happened between the 2016 elimination to Sweden and the Olympics, which was a premature uh, elimination in terms of how uh, we view ourselves as a, as a, a women's soccer playing nation. So there was all a lot of hand-wringing and um, unhappiness afterwards. There was talk of a player rebellion. Uh, she made, she changed the tactics from a 4-4-2 to a 3-5-2. And that 3-5-2 did, uh, did help Kristen Press and, and Alex Morgan play off of each other. But then it really kind of negated what Rapino and uh, Heath bring you. And Tobin Heath is probably your best player. She may not have been your best player in this World Cup, but she's probably in the grand is scheme of things over the last in, four years. In, 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 the, in the game of soccer that is more terrifying when they're dribbling at you. Than Chris, than Tobin Heath. I mean, that's just yeah. That's just a cheat code, right? Like, yeah. That was that was something that I also find it interesting when I I just look overall. Not that they won because I think most people thought they were going to win. I I did going in this tournament, knowing a little bit about some of these other teams. But I just figured, you know what? The team that's most talented is probably going to win, unless their manager really screws them up. And Jill Ellis has never really done that. And the fact that the U.S. could still play, even without Lindsey Horan, who was an NWSL MVP and is great, obviously, and she could come in off the bench and it doesn't matter for the U.S. is pretty crazy. And Crystal Dunn, who is not a left back, playing amazingly at left back, replacing Tierney yeah. Davidson, who's a legitimately good left back, is also insane. Because when you think about that, like, Crystal Dunn is not And not taking back. Casey Short. I mentioned Casey Short. Yeah. Not taking her at all. Yes. Yeah. Like, Crystal Dunn's not a left back. And it was going up against some of the best players in the world and played some amazing soccer. And you're going like, wait a minute. Maybe she does know something that we don't. It, it, was, it was high irony, I think, in maybe that way. And Jill Ellis can now say, okay, guys, have I earned your trust now? Because, I mean, I don't see any reason why Jill Ellis is going to go anywhere. I think the Federation probably keeps her. Because you don't walk away from a two-time World Cup yeah. manager. Uh and, like, maybe now she could go into the Olympics of 2020 with the benefit of the doubt. But the other thing I think you have to look at with the, with the U.S. women, you have to look at it with all, like, highly trained athletes. And I look at it with another team, and it might be a weird comparison I'm about to make, but I cover Maryland sports, and the Maryland women's lacrosse team is the best assemblage of women's lacrosse talent that there is. It's dominant. And if they lose, it's a really, really big deal. But they always find a way to motivate themselves. There's always something that gets them whether it's a loss, a perceived slight by the rankings, or tournament seeding or something. They always find a way to get motivated. This year they lost to Northwestern at a Big Ten title game. It was the first time they had lost by like six more goals in like 12 years. It's insane. So then they go in, they play Northwestern in the same stadium in the Final Four, and they scored the most goals they've ever scored for the coach in that game. And the U.S. women remind me a lot of that because they find motivation in everything. Oh, you don't think our manager is that great? Watch this. Or you think France is going to beat us? Watch this. Right. Or hope solo's mouthing off. Or hope solo's mouthing off before the tournament. So hope watch this. Yeah. That also, they always uh, find motivation. Let alone and Trump, etc. stuff. I mean, right. that to me, it's a great. That is the definition of great athletes. They always find ways to motivate themselves. And trust me. Even though they've won two straight World Cups, you don't think that that group's going to be intensely motivated at the Olympics? I mean, they're always going to fight. That doesn't always work, but they will find a way to be motivated. It always happens, and that is something that very highly trained athletes can do. They can find motivation out of anything, and that's the other thing. And, like, you, I thought the 13-0 against Thailand actually kind of motivated them even more. It's like, well, you made us angry. Do you want to see what really happens? Yeah, they are serial winners, and they have that DNA of serial winners. Real quickly before we leave the Dutch, uh, obviously Gronin, uh, who's Neil's favorite player I think in the world at this point, will be 25 next year. Medema will only be 23. Martins, who had a great World Cup, scored a lot of goals, will only be 27. Um, Ferristine is pretty young, too. I think she's 21 or 22. Mm -hmm. So um, they have a core which is going to be around for a while. We will probably see them again. Uh, soon in a major tournament Olympic, final or semifinal Olympics, Olympics. Yeah. Euros, yeah. Euros. The Euros in 2021 are going to be a lot of fun because you're going to have England hosting it, the Dutch. You're going to have Spain, who's probably going to be even better by then. Italy made it this far. You know, it's going to be. A lot I, of I just feel like tournament. England has to get to the final of that tournament. I think they have um, to win that tournament. Actually, yeah, I have to think. I actually, you're right. 
They have Maybe Great Britain at the Olympics. That's just an awkward situation because of the dynamics of how it is in international soccer versus the Olympics themselves. But England's got to win that 2021 Euros, probably. So we'll, we'll think about that. And just one other thing about just the way that this team has reacted or the way that the, the country... Yeah, reacted. I wanted to get your take on that. It's, Go ahead, it's really interesting. It's, it's like maybe like because you don't see teams celebrate like that. I mean, I have. The Washington Capitals, when they won the Stanley Cup, I mean, Alex Ovechkin's partying in fountains. And you could understand that because, you know, it's the Capitals and all of their history, and we don't need to get into that here. But for this team, it's like I don't necessarily even remember them celebrating like this crazily in 2015. That was more of a redeem team type story. Redeem team, you know what I mean? Like the 2000 yeah. Olympic basketball team that won, and they called them the redeem team because of what happened in 2004. This team wasn't quite like that. This team is a lot more like, we are going to prove that we can do this for extra, right? And people got a little bristled off by that, I think largely because this team was kind of queer, you know, and very openly so. And maybe that offended people because they haven't seen anybody act like that before. Me being in my position, if you know who I am, you know that I am openly bisexual. I've seen this. This is not new. But for something this public and this massive that captures the country's imagination, right, it is hey. truly interesting. And, and, and somebody brought it up. It's like if you see the reaction to that and you see people saying, oh, you shouldn't celebrate too much. You shouldn't do all this stuff, whether it be the English press, whether it be the people talking after Thailand. And you view it through that prism, and I'm trained to view it through that prism. You go, oh, yeah, I can kind of see that, right? Because people haven't seen anything like that before. And right. there's a history where players who wanted to be out in the past couldn't, and that actually kind of divided the team. And, the and, that, and that was something I want, uh, if you could elaborate on this, Matt, I wanted to point out about 11 and 15. Now, 11, we get to the final. Um, but and, they and having, had to play a playoff to get there. They lost. Yeah, they had, they had to beat Italy in the playoff. But 11 and 15, I think there were divisions within the team. I don't want to get too deep into this. I just want to explain why there's so much exuberance now in 19, because that was very much a time in our society when we were grappling as a larger American society about uh, athletes being out or not being out. Um, and 15, we began to see the, the other side of the, of, of the rainbow or whatever it's analogy you want to use, the other side of the tunnel, the light at the end of the tunnel with that. But 19 is the first time where I think the U.S. has won a major women's tournament where um, American society in general has accepted um, the idea of their, their, their heroes, their athletes being, being out, being LGBTQ openly. Well, and it's also not just being out, but being very public about it. Being, being very face, public about it, right? Well, talking about, about it. it, which, yeah. listen, it, it is not something that if you are parachuting in, like this women's team is like that. And there's a whole other discussion that we can't get into here because we don't have time about what it, what, what it means for women to be out versus men. It's a whole can of worms that I would, there are plenty of places where you can go find that information. And I have my opinions on that being in the position I'm in. But for these women, like they are very public about it and they were public about it before, but this is something entirely different. And people haven't necessarily seen that. Just the average sports fan, you know, who's coming in, right, to watch what's going on they are not used to seeing people being like this public about it. And it is very shocking when you, when you've never seen it for me, this is not new. I've seen this all the time. And it's like, well, if you think this is shocking, I can show you something that's more shocking to you because you know, I, I've been there, but that that's something that's part of it. And also the way they're very publicly taking stands on issues. And that's also, we see that from male athletes but we've not really seen women do that because more or less, like they're just fighting for women's sports in general. That was the 99 team, like kind of fighting for women's sports in a larger context. Yeah, yeah. The women's team are, this group is fighting for very specific sorts of issues and very defined things that they're going after. And their captain and most public figure is this incredibly openly powerful queer athlete, which if again, if you haven't seen something like that before, it might come off to you as going, well, that seems like you're going a bit over the top. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's a dynamic that we would have to get into on another show because we do want to talk yeah. about not just the women, but the men. But So let's it, transition. But let's it is something I want to say. Like It's fascinating to view it from that prism and to see how the public has reacted to it and how a lot of people are accepted it and how the equal pay thing was going on. 
But again, the fans of women's soccer, the really dedicated, devoted fans of women's soccer, are almost in lockstep with everything that they say. It's just how the wider American public, this pop culture phenomenon, reacts to that sort of thing. Not just the average women's soccer fan. So let's transition onward to, to the team man. With much less and, popularity and a lot of people dislike. Yeah, uh, and, and uh, I, playing a team that's equally popular or almost equally popular to the if U.S. The, women's if team the US in the U.S. In Mexico, that would have been a great symbolic kick in the nuts for homophobia. But obviously, we can't have that because you know. Yeah, um, you know we'll we'll get in. I do the puto chants and all of those uh, things associated with the Mexican it's, it's national team. People, it's homophobic. Well, it's not only homophobic, it is it is beyond the pale of, you know, kind of um, uh, cognitive dissonance when you get when you talk to fans about it who say, well, that's our culture. Well, you know, I, I, I think um, you know what was in our culture in the past in the United States. Slavery. Yeah. Right. So, so at some at some point you have to transition beyond that if you want to be accepted in, in kind of uh, uh Cordial society. Well, well, what, happens, what happened last year in the World Cup when that chant got eliminated, not because it was homophobic, but because the Mexicans didn't want to end up having their team sanctioned for it, which is like, well, you're doing the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. And right, exactly. And all these stories that FIFA is actually going to punish them. And I said, if, the, if you punish them, I'll eat my own hat. They're not actually going to do it. CONCACAF has no ability to do it because, let's be honest, the Mexican fans who say it make them money. And they're the only way they make money on the Gold Cup because they sell out all the games, the inflated prices. It's not the U.S. fans that do it, uh, as we saw in this tournament. But, again, that's another example for another day. I want to focus on the actual team and the soccer because I did cover the game against Curacao. Uh, and I have covered U.S. soccer the last couple of years. Very different environments. Covered a game. I've covered Jurgen Klinsmann games. I've covered Bruce Arena games, Dave Sarakin. And I've covered now a Greg Berhalter game. And... What's so fascinating about this team and the reaction to it is there is still so much raw scar tissue from Cuba and not just that, but from the presidential election. And I don't think we, following the men, have really been able to grasp just how divisive that election was and how much damage it did and how we're still healing from that damage and how that takes a long time to heal from. Just from a, why couldn't Greg Berhalter be in a year ago thing, which is a straw man, because even if he was in earlier, it might not have changed the overall paradigm, because I think we're now getting into like legitimate arguments about the player pool, and as opposed to saying, well, the player pool's bad, or Jurgen Klinsmann not taking players from MLS, which is another thing entirely. But I think we're now only starting to maybe, because we're, there's distance between that and where we are now, that it was a very divisive time, and it takes a uh, long time to rebuild those bridges. And we are, we are, we are, we're not there yet with the presidential election, because I think you see people who uh, opposed Cordero actively, you know, any, and, and you know, I, I was in that camp in terms of my politics within the Federation, but Verhalter's now the manager. Uh, he's going to be the manager at least through 2022. He might be the manager through 2026. So... Uh, let's get on with it is my attitude and it's almost like you know it's almost like the cultural revolution under chairman Mao. you're a counter-revolutionary release uh, revolutionary suddenly if you say anything complimentary about burhalter uh, which is related to soccer matt not related to the politics or the way he was selected or the way the uh quote search went so that hasn't been uh, uh healed and the other thing that hasn't been healed is now there is a lot of revisionism among people who opposed cordero uh trying to praise and uh build up the klinsman era and say well klinsman failed because of mls klinsman failed because he was undercut here undercut there how about he was just a bad manager and he got lo lo more rope than any u.s manager has ever gotten well men's or women broad bradley arguably lost you know played better soccer and his team did more and, and, and by the way matt and not not play better soccer, got further. He got he had less rope and selected more guys from Europe. And you know was more uh, critical of MLS internally, privately, the sort of things that. But of course, you know he's American and he's coached at MLS, so uh, that this this group of people don't want to uh, give that credence. So I, I'm just over the whole thing because I am in that camp in terms of reforming U.S. soccer, in terms of wanting to see new leadership from outside, new ideas a restructuring of the youth development program. But 
we are where we are. Verhalter's a manager. However we got there, he's there. He is a qualified manager. He is making progress in terms of at least wanting to, to, to change the way the U.S. plays and implement an actual style of play, which the U.S. has not had, by the way, ever. Um, I mean, they did uh, under Bradley, but it was very, you know, very typical, like, what you thought of when you thought of U.S. soccer. Is we're going to yeah, right, you, true. we're going to counterattack. I mean, you needed a, a style to win that Spain game the way that they did, and yeah. they did. But I think the other, the other thing that we should talk about when it comes to this is, listen, the U.S. is developing good players. Are there holes? Obviously, this is a gigantic country. We're the most successful giant country in the world when it comes to soccer because the other big ones are not nearly as successful as the U.S. is in many ways. Certainly India and China aren't. You know, other, like, superpowers other than Brazil in terms of just raw population. Not Indonesia isn't. Pakistan isn't. You know, yeah, nope. none of these countries are, which is why this argument is so myopic. Even when people came at me with the argument about Curacao, I said, you realize how easy it is if your country has 30 or 35 really good players? Many of them are, have come through the Dutch system, which... Uh, we just made the thing about Anson Dorrance earlier, but the Dutch system is considered one of the top development systems in the world, if not and the top development system. How easy it is. To, they play together all the time. How easy it is to actually formulate a team. I'm not saying you should lose to Curacao, but what I am saying is the Iceland and Curacao examples are bad examples because it's the same thing in Iceland. They had 30 or 35 guys. They all played the same style of football. They had played together on the youth national teams, et cetera, et cetera. It is a very different situation than if you're the United States or you're England or you're Russia and you've got huge populations and you've got tons of uh, players coming through your system. It and, is and, totally different. Well, as I said, the U.S. is a big country. There's a lot of problems with it. Don't get me wrong, but we're not looking in the right places to identify those problems. We're, we're, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. Right. And listen, U.S. soccer has issues. The Jay Burhalter thing is bad, and it's bad because of the optics. It's very bad, but, yeah. But that's different than the soccer discussions. And the reason why the U.S. failed to qualify for the World And, and Matt, sorry, sorry uh, just to, cut, to, to jump in here for a second. What I want to see happen is a separation of the soccer discussion from those discussions, which since the presidential election has gotten worse and worse – I associate with the people who make the criticisms. I agree with them on most of the criticisms and have embraced them and championed them. But then now in this last six months since Burhalter has become the coach, it's spilled into rooting against the men's national team or criticizing the men's national team, which, by the way, was not happening when Dave Sarakin was the manager. Those people, those critics were still cheering on the U.S. Well, uh, were, so there's something about Burhalter. Other things. They're busy with other things, I think, yeah. say, definitively. And, and I have interviewed Dave Sarakin. I know him pretty well, so... That's another topic for another. But, but continue, Matt. Sorry, you were making of a just, point. In terms of just saying that U.S. soccer needs to be better, needs to be reformed as a business, yes. If you saw those, you know, those job sites, I forgot what it's called, but if you see those things. Glassdoor, yeah. Yes. Those are true. Those are true. The soccer needs to improve, also true. But you can go there for different tracks. It's all tied together, but we can analyze them independently of one another. They aren't, you know, they aren't mutually exclusive. You know, you can, you can figure these things out. These things happen, yes? And I, and I want to be able to say that. And also, it's not as if Greg Burhalter is some unqualified hack, you know. He right. doesn't know what he's doing. And he is a real manager and has history. I mean, what he did with the Columbus crew was incredibly impressive. And you could have argued, oh, well, maybe they hired Ernie Stewart after a, a search that was not great. Yes, I understand that. You know, I have yelled at them for saying, you didn't even consider Tata Martino? How stupid are you? And they did it for purely, and I'm going to argue it, xenophobic reasons, because they didn't want to have a manager who couldn't speak English. And, yeah, that's, that's terrible. But Greg Berhalter is the manager. He's going to be the manager unless there's a really horrible scandal, and Lord willing there isn't, that comes down in the future. And for now, we have to analyze what the U.S. is with Berhalter and... From the time he started to where we are now, and that's six months, and you look at where the player pool is and where U.S. soccer is, to get to a final and almost outplay Mexico, they had better yeah. chances, they didn't take them, in a hostile environment with a player pool that is still not anywhere where we hoped it would be, I can't really complain about that. I, I, I'm not trying to run down what we've done in the past because we, we had to play a certain way and we had a certain style. You talked about it with Bradley. We have never 
And I'm including all the Dose Cero matches in this, other than maybe the game in Columbus in 2013 under Klinsman, where Mexico was really the bad. Or 2005, or 2005. I think that was maybe... Oh, the 2005 game the with Ralston and Bar Beasley. The 2005 game was only one yeah. that I could even really say. Like, the U.S. has never been able to go toe-to-toe with Mexico. Yeah, never taken the game to Mexico. It's been 2-0, but it's been a set well, pieces, counterattacks, or kind of did that in 2011, and then it went wrong. So, well, yeah, but but that was even still a lot of counterattacking, and it was very early. We've never gone toe to toe with them for 45 minutes and been a better team attacking uh, in a well in friendlies maybe. I remember the game in in Phoenix I was at in 2007. You know, you could argue in that game we did, but th- those were all friendlies in a major final. Um, I, I was pretty impressed, even with where the U.S. player pool is, where Mexico's player pool is, and the situation with Mexico missing a lot of good players, and they were missing a lot of good players. Mexico's player pool is deeper, but Mexico's in a different position in the U.S., and I I know we have to compare them all the time because it is natural, right? Because they are the two superpowers of, of soccer in this region. But Mexico's always in a different position, and you know what? Again, remember, the Liga MX presidents choose the manager for the Mexican Federation. It's a right. disaster in how they're structured. And many managers don't want to take that job because they know the politics of it is a disaster. Remember, they can't make it to a quarterfinal of a World Cup. You know, all these Gold Cup wins in the end mean jack if they can't make it to El Quinto Partido, and they never will, right? So yeah. for all the things we talk about with Mexico, I like to think in this, in this particular example for the U.S., this was a, a team that didn't have Tyler Adams, it didn't have John Books, it didn't have DeAndre Edlin. It is a player pool that is not where it needs to be. It is at a very low ebb, and from 2009 to 13, if you want to talk about youth tournaments meaning something, getting there is an indication, right? And you look at the rosters of those teams from 2009 to 13 when they're really not very good, including the 2011 team that didn't qualify. That is the heart of what should be the national team now, and it isn't. So what Burhalter is doing is saying, okay, Josie Altador, who is still very good, by the way, and the, the criticism he gets is ridiculous. And it's the same with Michael Bradley, who is still a very good midfielder, even though he wasn't what he once was. He's still perfectly capable. And unless you can tell me somebody who's better, and yeah, well, and what's Tyler, the alternative to, to what's the alternative to Michael Bradley? And, and, uh, and, and for, for those critics out there, Tyler Adams, there are caveats which we will get into as to why. Yeah, you're going to get into that. In say a that, but. If you're going to say things like that, you have to at least come up with alternatives, and that doesn't happen all that often, and those players still have a role to play. Yes, they failed in that Kuva game, but if you redid that game, 99 times the U.S. gets a draw in, or a win in most of them, and Italy didn't qualify for the World Cup. The Dutch didn't qualify for two major tournaments in a row, including a 2014 Euros. I think they're going to be all right. You go and the, and the Dutch turn around and then get to the Nations League final. So again, this stuff is cyclical. It happens. And, and listen, the U.S. went through a low ebb in development. We saw what happened in that low ebb. And if you want to associate not qualifying for the Olympics in 2012 or 2016 as part of that, and I don't think the Olympics mean anything, but that also could play a role. But when you look at development, the last three USU 20 teams made it to the quarterfinals of that World Cup. Players from those teams are already starting to come in. And as long as you get three or four, you're fine. The player pool is not perfect. Aaron Long was the best player in the, for the U.S. in the final, and he was cut from the Timbers after being a second-round super draft pick, starting as a midfielder. Then the Red Bulls converted him to center back, and sometimes things happen. These curves are not linear. They are not straight-line paths. Sometimes you don't have players like that, right? You know, sometimes superstars become superstars, but other times... That's not necessarily the case, right? And development is different for every player. So when you say, oh, if this guy were in Europe, he'd be tearing it up. Why is he in MLS, et cetera, et cetera. It's different strokes for different folks. I think um, for certain guys, uh, Long is a great example. You just having access to a professional league and to even lower division professional leagues. We've got guys who've gone through the USL system or the NASL system in, in our national team pool is so important. They develop differently. Um, you can't just be p- picking guys based on, oh, well, this one, Conrad De La Fuente, he, Barcelona likes him, so he must be good. That is an assumption that a lot of U.S. fans have made now for all too long. And I, I'm glad you bring up the Aaron Long example because that, to me, is, a, is the type of player. And I'm not saying you have a national team, 23 of those guys, but you need to ha- accommodate and allow 
for guys like that to eventually fit their way and work their way into the national. My, my Zach Steffen story is this. He went to Maryland. I saw him play. I knew at that point, this dude's the future of the U.S. in net. I could see it then. He then went to Freiburg. It didn't work out there. And there's a great story by Henry Bushnell of Yahoo, and he wrote about why it didn't work for him at Freiburg. Then he comes back and plays for the crew, takes those steps up and up and up, and then ends up going to being the U.S. keeper. And now Manchester City signed they've loaned him out, but he is the definitive guy. These things do yeah. not happen in a linear fashion. Even if I, six or seven years ago, saw the talent in Zach Steffen, I'm like, okay, this dude's the real deal. Just so Matt, let's in a straight way. It doesn't happen yeah, it doesn't, like that. It's not the very few straight line cases. Uh, Matt, uh, you, you mentioned Tyler Adams and him playing potentially in central midfield versus right back. Uh, I, I think I know what you're going to say. Go ahead and, uh, and and tell us what you're thinking. I do not like the inverted fullback, by the way. I'm just saying as a tactical idea, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, maybe for Pep Guardiola it does when you don't actually have the other central midfielders other than Fernandinho, who's old. So perhaps maybe for him it works. But for Tyler Adams, as a number six, there is nobody that has been as good as him. And, I mean, you would have a more historical perspective than I do. And the U.S. has had plenty of good, solid bulldog midfielders, right? Yeah. You know, Chris Armis. Yeah. You think of guys like that, Mastroeni, et cetera. There are, Rico Clark. Kobe Jones wasn't identical, but, you know, he was kind of like that with his energy and the way that he played. You know, the U.S. has had a lot of those kinds of midfielders. Um Tyler Adams is a six, but there is a difference between Tyler Adams, oh, you just play him in midfield and plug him into Greg Berhalter's system and all is well with the world. It doesn't quite work like that because what Tyler Adams has played in his entire career is a system with Jesse Marsh and Chris Armas, which is a pressing system, and Jesse Marsh is more of a zealot of the press than maybe any other modern manager. Like, you even look, yeah. Bielsa doesn't even coach it that way anymore, right? right. Sam Pauli doesn't even coach it that way anymore. Pochettino came in as a zealot of the press and has now developed a lot of other different things that his teams can do. Jesse Marsh was a one-trick pony. He was a press all the time. And Tyler Adams played in that system. And what a number six in a pressing system is supposed to do is he is supposed to win the ball and within one or two seconds make a five-yard pass to pass it to somebody else to advance the ball down the field, right? RB Leipzig is very similar to that. They are a pressing team. That is what Nagelsmann's going to coach. That's what Ragnick did. You know, that is what was the name of the guy who came before that, who, who uh, the Austrian. I can't remember, but whatever the person. Yeah, you're right. Correct. And, and he's now coaching at Southampton. These right, are right. things that that system wants to be. And Tyler Adams is really, really good at that. Greg Berhalter's team is entirely different. When the U.S. is in possession, he doesn't want necessarily – to dictate the game via the press. His team presses, but once you beat that first line of the press, it's actually a pretty low block that they sit in. They're pretty defensively organized. That's one thing you can say about the U.S. in this tournament. They gave up two goals, but they were really well organized, and that back four was coached pretty well. They didn't have a lot of mistakes. There were some in the Mexico game, but that was a pretty good performance from that back four, no matter who played. Even Tim Ream didn't look that out of place, and he's not a very good left back, yes? Reggie Cannon looked very good in this as, tournament, as by right the way. Back. We'll get to him and some position things in a second. But that system is dictated on passing. And what Greg Berhalter wants his deepest-lying midfielders to do, no matter how they line up, whether it's a 4-2-2-2, whether it's a 4-1-4-1, whatever it is, or a 4-2-3-1, that deepest-lying midfielder has to pass. And not only has to pass, has to have a really diverse range of passing. How often did you see Michael Bradley hit that switch? Out to the flanks, we're going to pick out the fullback who's up there, or Jordan Morris, or Tyler Board, or Pore Ayola on the left, right? Sometimes if it wasn't Michael Bradley, it was the center back. That is a very defined skill set that you have to have that not everyone has, yes? And it is the reason why Will Trapp is still in the player pool, and it's the reason why Michael Bradley is starting. Because for all of Michael Bradley's faults, he cannot cover all that much ground anymore because he is older. He can still hit that pass. And Greg Berhalter yeah. likes to move teams from side to side to make openings. Sometimes I think that team plays a bit too much like a Rube Goldberg machine. You're trying to do 70 different things to get to the goal, right? And as I said, maybe Greg Berhalter at times needs to simplify the way his team plays. And you're trying to teach somebody very difficult calculus before they know how to divide, right? 
or any metaphor you want to use. They're trying to run before they can crawl. These are difficult things that maybe Greg Berhalter has to improve upon as a manager, and we've seen that. But when it comes to Tyler Adams, Tyler Adams can't hit that switch that Michael Bradley can or that Will Trapp can. He's a very different kind of midfielder who's been coached a very different time of system. Now, while I firmly believe that Tyler Adams, if you put him out there as a true number six, when you don't ask him to do anything other than destroy everything that comes his way and then make a pass and then get rid of the ball because he reads the game so well, he puts out fires really well, he has good understanding of the game and soccer IQ to do that from that position, and you have to be really smart. You need a really special midfielder to do what Tyler Adams does and to be able to hit that, have a, that reach of passing, yes? Yeah. I can't think of any midfielder in the modern game that can do that, right? Like, what other uh, is there that can do the kind of destroyer things that Tyler Adams could do, but also has that really diverse so, range of So players? you always, like, for example, for, for, for Spain uh, and for, for Chelsea, uh, Real Madrid, for whoever, not Real Madrid, obviously, Barcelona, Arsenal, they always have to pair Fabregas, who can hit that pass better than anyone in world football, with somebody. So whether it was Busquets um, at Spain, whether it was Xavi Alonso, you know, whoever, uh, Conte with Chelsea, I mean, obviously that worked brilliantly. But you had to pair him with someone, right, mm-hmm. um, who could do that. So Adams could be that N'Golo Conte. He's not at that level, obviously. I'm not pretending. I'm not saying he is. People, before you get too uh, excited about this, um, but then you need the player next to him, who is probably Michael Bradley or World Trap at this point. Maybe it's someone else in the future. But right now, those are the two guys in the pool that can do that. If Tyler Adams um, can learn how to pass like that, that would be amazing. But he's never going to be asked to do that when he plays for a team that presses. Pressing teams don't pass that way all that often. Yeah. You know, when you think of pressing managers, if you watch Spurs, they don't do that all the time anymore. They have developed different ways to play. Tyler Adams has played in a one-track system his entire career. And if Greg Berhalter can teach him how to do that, then I would be ecstatic if he could. But I don't. That, think that's why the happen. central midfielders, by the way, for, for teams that have been pressing high – in recent years, Bayern, Spurs, Manchester City, Liverpool look very different than Michael Bradley or Cesc Fabregas. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Like, what Liverpool midfielder does what Michael Bradley does? None of them. The, none of them. It's just a different way of playing the game. And Greg Berhalter then has to adapt because Tyler Adams is one of his best players, if not his best player. It could be him as most important. So then yeah, how does he yeah. adjust to that? He's wanted to try to do the inverted fullback, quote-unquote, which I don't really like. And based on the evidence from this tournament, when you've had great fullback play from the right at the very least, he has to adjust. Tyler Adams is going to play. It's just a matter of, does that mean Weston McKinney's dropped? What happens there? Where does the adjustment come in from Greg Berhalter? And that is something that they could figure out, and he doesn't know the answer to that question yet. So I'm going to go cite Matt Doyle of MLSsoccer.com, and he has six questions that... He asked about the future of the U.S. men's national team, and I'm going to posit them to you and posit them to our listeners, and we'll talk about them all. We already talked about number one. Can Tyler Adams manage the game from the defensive midfield position in the same way that Michael Bradley so often did? Unless he finds that range of passing that he will never be asked to do for his club, the answer is probably not, and that means Greg Berhalter has to adjust the way he plays. Does that mean that Weston McKinney's dropped so that Tyler Adams can sit and let Michael Bradley do all these other things that will make the rest of the team better. Maybe play like a, like a real 4-2-3-1 with a double pivot. Perhaps that's what we see. But I don't know the answer to that question yet, and that's something that Greg Berhalter... I, I, I think I himself. do know the answer to that question. I do think I know the answer to that question, which is that you pair a Bradley-like player with McKinney. I don't think Adams figures if you're going to play this style. Unless he improves his range of passing. He's which, going as to you play. say, probably... He's going to play. It's just a matter of... But he might play it right back. He might play it right back. And he's, he's, I think that neuters what he does. He's not as good if you play him at right back. And this no. is on Greg Berhalter. I have no idea whether he's going to change the quote-unquote system. But he, it didn't look like what we thought the system was going to look like when he's played in these games, right? There have been adjustments. He is not an inflexible manager. Sometimes no. he can be. But I don't think he's totally inflexible. But Tyler Adams and his skill set would require him to do different things. If but let me the pull- national team, one second, was coached by Jesse Marsh, we wouldn't be having this question because we know that Tyler Adams would fit directly into the way that he wants to play. But with Greg Berhalter, that's a question that he has to ask. And he's a smart man. 
he knows this sport better than any of us. So I will give him the benefit of the doubt as the ability to find out that answer. Yeah, and I think the psyche of our fan base is that uh, whatever fans are left, right? We talked earlier about the, the reduction in the oh, number of fans. Oh, there were plenty of people in my mentions on Sunday night when I said, hey, the U.S. is in a fine position. They're going to be okay. And... Yeah, yeah. Uh, but results, my point is, and I'm, I'm, I'm making your point, sort of, I don't think the results really matter at this point. My thinking is that if you've got a system and you've got a process and you've got a manager that has a style of play, you, you give them the next year to figure it out. And that it means figuring out these individual ideas. And I'm not saying he should be inflexible. I, I agree with you on that, but I don't necessarily think he is inflexible. But there needs to be a certain degree of rigidity, uh, even if it means you lose matches at, 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 the, at the front end now, uh, in order to implement the system. So with that in mind, Matt, let's go through some players. Uh, well, hold on. I want to I go through these questions, and we'll get to players okay. as it gets into that. Okay. The second question from Matt Doyle, is there any other number nine in the U.S. pool who can do the hold-up play that made Josie Altidore irreplaceable? And the answer to that question right now is no, no there isn't. Giazzi Zardes is in this pool because he knows the dance steps. He knows what Greg Berhalter wants his center forward to do. He knows exactly where those runs are being made, so it's second nature to him, and he's there to teach Josie Altidore, hopefully Josh Sargent, although I'm not as high on Josh Sargent as some people are. I don't think, you know, you, you can anoint him as the savior until we actually see him do that, and he needs to play at Werder Bremen this year. Uh, until that happens, Giassi's artist is going to be there. And I know people get frustrated by that, but you need somebody in a system that is pretty complicated. There's a lot of things going on. If you have someone for which it's already second nature, and for Giassi's artist, it is second nature, and he scored a billion goals for Greg Berhalter last year, this is something that is irreplaceable. And Josie Altor is 100% better than him, and he wasn't 100% fit in that final. When the U.S. plays Mexico again in a game that means something, March in Nations League or World Cup qualifying, he probably will be 100% fit, and the game will look a lot different. But to the answer to that question right now is no, and that's why Giassi's artist is still in the pool. Did Josh Sargent kind of get mismanaged? He probably should have been at the U-20 World Cup if he wasn't going to get taken to the Gold Cup. I agree with that. But we can't think that Josh Sargent is automatically this amazing striker. We haven't seen it proven yet. And someday we will see a striker that develops somewhat like Josie Altador, but we might not see a Josie Altador analog ever again because he's a unique kind of player. He's a battering ram. He's very old school in that, but he's got those touches, and he has that U.S. mentality. And if he finishes that goal in the seventh minute against Mexico, I dare say the U.S. probably wins the game. So, anyway, uh, number three question for you, Kartik. Is there any upgrade available at left back? There probably is, but I don't have one off the top of my head. Maybe Nick Lima starts at left back. You slide him over from the right to the left. Um, everybody likes Chris Gloster, who's at Hanover and could move to PSV. I think that in the next couple of games, because you're playing two friendlies and then you're playing Nations League against Canada and Cuba, who are not very good, Cuba's terrible and Canada can't defend. So that's when you experiment with left back. You try Nick Lima out there. You try, all right, is there somebody who we think can have those left-back abilities for what we want to see? This is when you try stuff. You've got five camps before the hex, which we'll get into a second, to try these things. So will there be a left-back? I don't know the answer to that question right now. Maybe Fabian Johnson returns from hibernation, wherever he is. But that's something that we see, hopefully, figured out in these camps. And Greg Berhold has got a year pretty much to it. Yeah, I think Nick Lima is the guy you, you, you look at for now. If you were starting uh, it, a game that you had to win to get to the World Cup, I think Nick Lima probably starts. Although, I mean, maybe Burhalter starts Tim Ream, and he was fine. But if yeah. you're doing it in the ideal version, it's probably Nick Lima. That's a position for the U.S. that has always been a problem, and it's like, hey, why can't we have a Crystal Dunn type thing? Because U.S. women have no problem at left back. It's ironic. Yeah, we tried it with Eddie Lewis and, and, and kind of got away with it uh, in 2005 and 2006, but it's been it's been a problem. You know, played Boca Negra out there in 2010. That wasn't ideal, uh, but Johnson having demerited. Great at it, but no. it worked. I mean, it worked no. for the purposes. Okay. Question number four. Can the system, in air quotes, be more effective with Paxton Pomacall at central midfield and Christian Pulisic at left wing rather than Pulisic centrally? Uh, the answer to that question is 100%. Yes, Pulisic is a winger. I think this Gold Cup, if it told me anything, Christian Pulisic's a winger, and he should not play centrally. He's not as good defensively uh, when you play him centrally, and he has so much pace and raw power that anytime he's running at defenders, they're backpedaling. And if you're backpedaling against Christian Pulisic, it's over. And now yeah. this is also a question for Frank Lampard. Where is Pulisic going to play this season? And I have no idea what that's going to be like. But Pulisic no. is, a, is a winger. He's definitely a left winger. And Paxton Pomacall is better defensively. 
and fits in that dual tens kind of mold that Greg Berhalter wants. And if there's any player that I'm going to pump off, it's probably him because I've seen enough of him in high-level games, not just the U20 World Cup, but for FC Dallas where he's proven, okay, this guy can do all the creative things you want, but is good enough defensively, is going to be able to run 7,000 miles in a game and has all of the little things that you need to be successful for what Greg Berhalter wants. I think we see Pomacall in September. He's that good, and I agree with 100% with Matt Doyle there. Will Weston McKinney continue to prove at central midfield, i.e. will Schalke actually play him there this coming season? I don't know the answer to that. You have to ask David Wagner. I really don't know because with Schalke, he played basically everywhere except goal because either, as Doyle said, and this is correct, either Schalke was so bad that McKinney needed to play somewhere because they didn't have any other options, or Schalke doesn't know what Weston McKinney's good at, so they played him everywhere and they threw darts. Whatever the answer to that question is, we don't know. We're going to find out this year. Weston McKinney in perhaps my ideal U.S. team with an actual, like, legitimate double pivot, Weston McKinney's dropped because I still don't know what his best role is. Now, he definitely has a little bit of bite to him. He definitely likes to conca-calf it up a bit, but he's talented, but he needs to be defined a little bit better. He's too much of an amorphous blob as a soccer player at this point. He has a lot of skill sets, but I don't know what that leads to. Maybe we find out this year at Schalke. Maybe we don't. And perhaps Greg Berhalter then has to say, maybe we drop Weston McKinney then if it means we can be more defined in a lot of these things we do. Because a perfectly defined Weston McKinney, healthy Weston McKinney is probably a starter. But at this point, I don't know whether he can be. In my ideal 11, he probably isn't. But that's a Schalke question. And we're going to see how Schalke answers that question this year. And the final question you're talking about the inverted fullback. Will we see a return to the hybrid right back defensive midfielder, or will we see the more common overlapping right back? At this point, I think you need to see an overlapping right back. If you want Weston McKinney to play, you probably need to go to the inverted fullback. But with Nick Lima playing really well and Reggie Cannon stepping up, by the way, as a U.S. soccer fan, you must owe your debt of gratitude to FC Dallas for just churning out these players. Uh, one day we're going to have a thing on them where you just go with like, my God, I can't believe all these players they've created. You know, you talk about Ajax and Southampton as great selling clubs. Like, FC Dallas is the American version of that um, with Reggie Cannon. So, there you go. Those are the Matt Doyle six questions. I think we have decent enough answers to them, don't we? Yeah, I certainly think so. I think the the issue also, Matt, is whether uh, the fans are going to be patient with getting the answers to those six questions. And also, with the Josie Altador thing specifically, they acknowledge, you know what? Maybe our overreaction to, to, to Cueva and, and to Cueva and to uh, not qualifying for the World Cup led us to waste a year on other options up top, which just are not viable, not only in this system, but period, in international football. It is hard to find a player that does what Josie Altador does. Um, you're never going to find a like-for-like replacement. But as we said, because the U.S. now has because of CONCACAF's scheduled World Cup qualifying format, which I want to get into in a second, they have 10 games. If we go two camps, uh, with five camps with two games a camp, this coming up in September with friendlies against Mexico, probably Uruguay, your four Nations League games in October, November, the Nations League final, which presumably the U.S. will get to in March when they'll play two games. One of them will probably be against Mexico. Two more friendlies in June before the major tournaments. And then World Cup qualifying starts. That's 10 games, that's five camps, and that's a year's worth of analysis for Greg Berhalter, who's an incredibly smart man to figure out. I don't know whether the answers to those questions will come in that year's time in those 10 games, but this is the time when you figure it out because your Nations League games are against Canada and Cuba, and both of them, the U.S. should be able to win all those four games. You might play a game against Mexico in the Nations League final, which is not going to be a Gold Cup final, but it's still a competitive game. And then once you get to the hex, there is still a margin for error in that tournament, even though we know now that it's less than it used to be. If you give Greg Gerhalter a year to find this out, butt in some of these young players and find players who we don't know about yet, and there always is, I think that they'll be fine. I think they're going to be all right. CONCACAF is not as top-heavy as it used to be. It's a lot more balanced behind the U.S. and Mexico, which means there are a lot more good teams but fewer great teams, which means the U.S., if they're even remotely close to being able to connect on what they do, they're probably going to be okay. And I think you have to be patient with Greg Berhalter. I think you have to admit that, you know what? The player pool's not in a great position. He's doing with what he has as good as he can. He didn't have a lot of uh, resources with the crew, and he did fine there. 
he took them to the playoffs every year and they almost won MLS Cup. So he's not a bad manager. And I think that I look at, you know, just he is a manager that will at least go into a press conference and say, okay, here's what we thought was going to happen. Here's why we did what we did. And we're going to give you a very specific reason for that. We might not say whether we thought it worked or not. We'll leave that up to you. But when you go for other managers, Bruce Arena was kind of confrontational with the media. He always has been. That's been his M.O. When you have a manager like Jurgen Klinsmann, who never accepted blame and never really tried to explain what he did, he always thought that you should know, you should be able to figure it out. Greg Berhalter says things very specifically. And in those press conferences, and in that Curacao press conference, Ernie Stewart's watching him talk. So there are people who are always paying attention to him. I'm standing across the way in that room at Lincoln Financial Field from Ernie Stewart and watching his reactions to what Burhalter says. These are things that are going on. Burhalter is at least pretty open and honest about that. You know, if you ask him a question about why did you do X, Y, and Z, he'll give you say, okay, here's what we thought was going to happen. Here's what we believed was going to happen. Here's why we did what we did. And here is our analysis for that. As I said, he's not going to necessarily say, we thought it would, did, we don't know whether it worked or not. We're going to let you determine that. But he will give you explanations, and he's very frank and forthright about that, which is different from other U.S. managers. So we're running uh, low on time now. I know we're over an hour. Thank you for listening, continuing to listen, those of us, those of you who are still listening. Um, specific players. Why wouldn't you? There's a lot of good stuff going on here. I was even called reasonable by someone on Twitter on Sunday night. But how dare you bring reasonable takes into the discussion of U.S. men's soccer? Well, that seems to be unacceptable in this fan base. Uh, specific players. We talked about Reggie Cannon, uh, standout performer in this uh, in this Gold Cup. Same thing with Aaron Long. Who else uh, stood out for you? I mean, I think what we have to say is, is, I mean, we've learned how good Josie Altador is and how irreplaceable he is. I think that is hopefully something that U.S. fans are going to acknowledge. I think they have to acknowledge. Uh, some of us things. already knew that, but go some ahead. Of, I mean, I did, but I mean, some of you out there who still have that in your brain and were the people in Atlanta that booed him a couple of times, you need to admit that Josie still... You talk about him. Twitter meltdowns. When I uh, express my indignation toward the Atlanta fans for their treatment of like Altador and Bradley... I didn't like uh, the Atlanta fans doing that. I, it was unbelievable. I mean, I got a... I, 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 uh, I, I get into it on Twitter, as I think everyone knows, but I think I got off Twitter for two or three days. And, like, uh, you may have even deactivated my account. I was so spooked by these Atlanta fans coming after me. Uh, when they knew nothing, they had never watched Josie Altador before 2017, a lot of well, them. They might have. So they didn't know. They might have, but, I mean, it's, it's a different kind. So we learned how good Josie Altador is. I think Paul Ariel has a role. You know what I'd like to see the U.S. try in one of these games? Play Paul Ariola left back. See if it works. He's played left back for DC United. I don't think he's the answer, but maybe that works. You have to try it and see what happens. I think he proved that there's a role. And he's for him. so versatile. And he's so versatile. You he need. Like, I've four. always described James Milner as soccer's utility knife. You plug him in everywhere, and he's just fine wherever he goes. Maybe Paul Areola is like that. Whether you play him in a wing, yep. you play him in a left back role, his skill set does translate. And Greg Berhalter clearly likes him. So I think there's something that he can do. Um, obviously, as I said, Zach Steffen's the goalie of the future. There's no doubt about that as far as I'm concerned. He didn't really have to do all that much in this tournament, but he's the answer. I hope he plays well at Dusseldorf this year and they don't get relegated. Um, at center back, if, if you're giving me your four center backs as Long, Zimmerman, Miazga, and John Brooks, I think that's a pretty good solid four of center backs that you've got. Um, I, I mean, there could be someone that emerges, but that's a pretty good group of four. I don't think you need much more than that. Because you have the balance with Long. You have Miazga, who's more athletic. John Brooks can pass, obviously, has the vision of the game. And Walker Zimmerman plays – he's played really well for the best team in Major League Soccer. So I think those four, that's your thats your group of center backs. Are, are you at all concerned that we didn't see Zimmerman in that final? No, I've because I think that because that. of the way that Long and Miazga – because they have that Red Bulls understanding, because they played in the same system, though they never played together, you know, it, it's – that Long and Zimmerman is for a different kind of game. Perhaps when you're playing against a team that bunkers, you need a, a group like Long and, and Zimmerman. But Zimmerman's going to play in some of these games. Um, as I said, home games against lesser teams, you need somebody like Walker Zimmerman. But if you're playing against a more athletic team and a team that moves around a lot, I thought Miazga played pretty well in that game against Mexico. I thought Long was a better defender, 
but Long is a calmer guy in terms of the way he plays. Miazga's not like that. Miazga needs a good club, though. That's something that needs to be sorted out is his club situation, right? I mean, wherever he plays, he needs to play somewhere that's, you know, a, a stable place for him going forward. In terms of other players, like Tyler Boyd's useful. I don't know why people suddenly thought he was the best player ever. And Well, because there was, uh, because there was uh, a, a bias in among many American fans against anyone who plays in MLS. And if someone was foreign-born or for, raised in a foreign country and has played in Europe their entire career, they're automatically Tyler better. Boyd That's why. a good player. He is. I'm not sure necessarily that he's a dominant guy. Maybe that's Tim Weah's role come soon. I mean, Jordan Morris, I know why he's in the team. I know what he can bring. He just hasn't been able to bring it in big international games. He can do it in MLS games. Um, I like Tyler Boyd. I think he's going to be a part of the player pool going forward. I don't know if he's a starter, but his skill set is is useful. As you said, Reggie Cannon was very, very good. Uh, but Jordan Morris, though, can do multiple things, which is something, again, the fans don't seem to understand. Well, that also, the U.S. When you're filling... players that are, like, that are that direct, and the U.S. Yeah, so when you're players. filling out a roster, a 23-man roster for a major tournament, you need those types of players on the bench. Now, do I start them in the final? Maybe not. But you need players that can play in multiple positions on the front line, are direct, and are freaking fast. Yeah, and I mean, like, again... In a stretch match late on is the when you're chasing guy, a game. Is the ideal guy for that role Tim Weah? Probably, but... Is, yeah, yeah, in is, the future, yes. Is that yes. a guarantee for the moment? No. I mean, Tyler Boyd's fine. You've got some options at that position. And as I said, I mean, some of the other players, like the back end of the roster, the group that largely played against, um, against Panama in that game, not a lot of them are going to make it going forward. That's just the player pool issues right now. Somebody might emerge in the future. I think that there are players that are worthwhile. I like Dwayne Holmes and what I saw. Maybe he gets another look and another call yeah. going forward. I think that the player... And I think Holmes might have factored in this tournament if he hadn't gotten injured. It oh, he like... would have played a pretty big role. He would have played yeah. a pretty big role. And he might have been the guy that's thrown in in the final uh, and at the end. Yeah. Don is is not actually that terrible out on the wing. And Berhalter's explanation of, I want more possession in some of those positions to get, you know, to change the dynamic of the game. He's not wrong for thinking that might work. Now, it kind of didn't, but not a terrible idea. You know, like, as I said, this pool is not where you'd want it to be at this point, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, Mexico was missing seven players, and they didn't outplay the U.S. in that game. They finished better, you know, and that's fine. And I think that you have to say, when you, when, you, when you watch the U.S. men's national team, and I try to talk about the process, and I know people hate that term, but you have to start thinking, like, this is a rebuilding team. This is a team that's starting from basically zero. You have to put the past out of your head and think that's yeah. just another era. And I know U.S. fans can't do that right now, and I understand why you can't do it. It's difficult. But you have to think of it as a group that's starting in large ways from scratch. And that means there's going to be new ideas. You don't, when you start a rebuild, you don't win immediately in any sport. It takes a year or two, and you go through growing pains. But, and listen, the U.S. has some world-class players and potential world-class players. And remember, there's a year until World Cup qualifying, which, by the way, CONCACAF, please change the format, because the fact that you're using FIFA rankings to determine the hex, and then, you know, screwing over a team like Trinidad and Honduras who are playing Martinique who are not FIFA members, to get their <laughs> that, that, that's, that's the most ridiculous. notable thing that, it's that's completely really... ridiculous and also by the way if you're canada like what the hell are you supposed to do or panama who i mean who would be in the hex probably if it wasn't for the fact that this structure itself concast gonna end up changing it because so many people are going to throw up a stink about it and i understand they want to get more teams involved in this but they're not doing it um so the u.s doesn't start qualifying for the world cup for another year it's got maybe 10 games left greg berholtz is a good manager I think he's going to figure it out. I think you also have to be patient and give him some time. And if you don't want to do that, I can't tell you what you can and can't do. I'm not here to tell you that. I can only present to you what I think about this team from my perspective in covering the game, having gone to multiples of games and covered them and talked to these players. That's what I think you have to be able to give them. And if you don't want to give them the benefit of the doubt, then that's fine, but you have to have a legitimate reason for it. And as I said, like the discourse on this team doesn't often seem like there are legitimate reasons for what's happening. And it's dicey. It is. And again, maybe one day that will change. If the U.S. had beaten Mexico, would that have changed? Possibly. 
but I don't think the discourse about this team necessarily reflects where the program is. And as I said, the U.S., if they are in the right frame of mind and in a good position in a year's time, will still be one of the favorites to get out of the hex and make it to the World Cup. Yep. It's I think going that's great... to not be, again, as, di- as again, will the U.S. have difficult games in qualifying? Yeah, they'll go to Costa Rica and probably lose. The hex is weird. By the way, I will make my statement on the air as about where the U.S. should be playing its Mexico game because I don't think they're going to play at Crew Stadium anymore because the magic of that's over. You know where they should play that game, that Mexico game in the hex? St. Paul, Minnesota, and hope it's in November so it's freezing. That sounds Come on, like U.S. Great... soccer. Listen, it's either Kansas City, which is fine, or you play in – St. Paul would be great. You know you'd get good fans. they got great fans up there in Minnesota. I love that club. They're very fun. That stadium's a beautiful little place when you've seen it on TV, uh, and they played a Gold Cup game there when it sold out. You would get fans there. It is not a highly uh, Mexican area, and obviously we know that for U.S. soccer, playing those Mexico qualifiers means you can't play it in areas like that. That's why they waited to Columbus. But again, you want to bring back Laguerre Fria, play, play there in November or March. It'll be freezing. That's, that's, that's my easy. suggestion to U.S. soccer, St. Paul and Allianz Field. That seems a great place to leave off, uh, Matt, today. So thank you for joining us. And uh, you can check us out at yanksarecoming.com. Where can we find you on Twitter, Matt? At Matt's, M-A-T-T-S, Musings1 on Twitter. You will see a lot of Tottenham talk there. And how much I love Tangy and Dombele, because he's amazing. Another podcast. Yeah, and probably, probably a lot of cuts on Arsenal also, and Arsenal not doing anything to help themselves this transfer window. Um, you can find me at Twitter at KKFLA737. Check us out at yanksforcoming.com. Thank you, Matt, for all your U.S. men's national team coverage, and we will catch you again real soon.